Matthew 13 is one of the more confusing and difficult passages in Scripture. Uh, The reason is because the chapter is primarily made up of parables. Parables can cause us uh, problems at times in understanding what's going on. A parable, to give you a definition of what a parable is, is a practical story that draws a comparison in order to illustrate a spiritual truth. Parables are often structured around what's called a simile, S-I-M-I-L-E. A simile is a figure of speech in which a comparison is being made. Thus you see the words like or as. In our case, the kingdom of heaven is like... We heard that several times as we read through the scripture this morning. The whole point of a parable is to challenge the way we think and the way we believe about something. That's the point of a parable. Jesus here in Matthew 13 uses parables. He uses these comparative stories to confront and to challenge our thinking about heaven. As we said, all the parables, well, I haven't said it yet, but the parables in Matthew 13 are about the kingdom of heaven. Did you pick up on that phrase being repeated several times as we read through it? Matthew actually, in the whole book, the whole gospel of Matthew, uses the phrase kingdom of heaven 32 times. I think it would be safe to say if something is mentioned 32 times, it is something we should pay attention to. If it's mentioned once, we should pay attention to it, but 32 times. Now, a good question to ask ourselves is, what is the kingdom of heaven? In short, the kingdom of heaven is the redemptive rule or reign of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. Rule or reign is the key because... When we use those words, we're talking about the authority and the sovereignty of God as the king, the ruler of the world. In this case, uh, God's rule or reign is redemptive. He's authoritative in that role of redeeming. In other words, kingdom of heaven is used to describe how God is asserting his authority in the redemption of sinners through Christ. Jesus who is the Messiah, the promised Savior of the world. There's a sense in which the kingdom of heaven... Here's what we need to understand about the kingdom of heaven. There's a sense in which the kingdom of heaven is a present reality. It's something we think about and we we focus on now. The kingdom is advancing in the world as we speak. God's kingdom is going forward in this world. As the gospel is preached and people repent and turn to Christ, the kingdom of heaven is advancing. And at the same time, there's a sense in which that kingdom has a future reality to it. The king is coming back, and one day his kingdom will come to a completion. It's going on right now. It's advancing, but there's coming a day when that kingdom will come to its completion. The future aspect of the kingdom of heaven is the main thing that Jesus is dealing with in these parables here in chapter 13. The redemptive rule of God in Jesus is advancing in the world now, But His kingdom will not be complete until Jesus comes back. Right now, we are living between the times. That's what you could say. Someone says, what are we living in? We're living between the times. We're waiting for Jesus to come back as the kingdom of heaven is advancing right now. Now, within the month of December, uh, being an emphasis, as we talked about on Lottie Moon, I want us to look at these parables and do with them what Jesus uh, intended for them to do. I want us to be challenged in our thinking and what we believe about heaven. 
That's Jesus' point. He's challenging people and how they think and what they believe about the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're looking at your handout there, you notice the main idea is rather long this week. Um, Let me read that for you. The kingdom of heaven is advancing in the world, and it will one day come to a glorious completion. For those who reject the gospel, there will be eternal judgment. For those who genuinely trust in Jesus, there will be eternal life. Now, I gave you some application right at the front. I don't normally do that. It's normally interspersed within the sermon or or toward the end, but I gave you some application right up front. And this application here, uh, in a sense, can deal with the first two points. The kingdom of heaven involves coming judgment. We said that. Respond by advancing the gospel so people around you and people groups around the world know the good news. That's that's how we apply this to that main idea and what's going on here. So let's look at these. And I won't read every verse. Some of them I will read. Some of them I will mention and we'll we'll move on. But notice in your handout there, we're going to deal with the parable of the weeds and the net. And you notice the verses we're going to be dealing with. And on your handout, you notice the coming judgment is inescapable. That's what Jesus is telling us about the kingdom of heaven. It's coming to its full completion one day. And judgment is inescapable. Now... If, if you picked up on it and you're familiar with this, Jesus continues this theme. He uses this agricultural theme that he's used in the parable of the sower. If you go back to the very first part of Matthew uh, chapter 13, he's dealing with what? The sower. He's sowing the, the seed, the good news of the gospel. And he uses these four different kinds of soils. And then he gets to verses 18 through 23. He, he gives a deeper explanation to his disciples as to what's going on. So Jesus now tells us the parable of the weeds. Or maybe you notice the the parable of the wheat and the tares. We have a very interesting story here. In this passage, Jesus is talking about what, church? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a field that's been sowed with good seeds. But what's happened? The field has been oversown with what? Weeds. And if you, if you remember in the reading there and you're familiar with this, the servants of the landlord, they, they've planted this field. This farmer owns this land. He has these servants. They've planted the field. And while they're sleeping, an enemy comes in and actually plants weeds in the field where the wheat has been planted. That's what's going on here. The servants, think about it. If you're one of these servants and you, you're working for this farmer and you're doing this work, you never suspect that something like this could happen, would you? You would never think about something like this happening. This is not the sort of thing that happens every day. How many of you farmers have someone come in and sow poisonous weeds in your field? You ever had anybody to do that? That's something you never think. Or you're hoping nobody's going to do that, right? You never think about that happening. These servants of this land, they never suspected that something like this could happen. Look at verse 27. And the servant... The servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in the field? How then does it have weeds? A very unique situation, is it not? It never, again, enters these servants' minds that someone would actually come to the field and plant weeds. They would never think of this happening. But that's actually what the landowner tells them is happening. Does he not? Somebody came in and somebody put weeds in this field. When the servants see The wheat began to come up. They're troubled by the number of weeds to the wheat. Now, some of you farmers are going, well, I have weeds in my wheat or in my fields. We all have 
weeds. But the field hands would have expected some weeds. Everyone expects weeds in their garden, right? How many of y'all have a garden? You expect some weeds to come up, right? It's not the appearance of the weeds that gives them the problem. It's the amount of the weeds. That's when you know you've got a problem, right? So they go to the master and they say, Look, did you change where you buy your seed at? Because something's just not right. I mean... Where did all these weeds come from? They're thinking maybe uh, whoever you bought the seeds from this time, maybe they didn't give you the right quality, they didn't give you a good seed. Something's wrong. Maybe that's why there's so many weeds. But verse 28, what's the response of the landowner? No. The seed I gave you was good. And what does Jesus tell us previously that the seed was? It was the Word of God. He's That's good seed. It's been sown. No, I gave you good seed. I gave you true, pure seed. But an enemy has done this. The landowner says that someone had deliberately planted weeds in the field. That's what's going on. And like I said, the servants ask him in verse 28, Do you want us to go out and remove all the weeds? What does the landowner, which is Jesus, by the way, what does he say? No. Leave the weeds alone. Verses 29 and 30. Jesus says, here's what's going to happen to the weeds. Here's how we're going to deal with the weeds. I'm going to bring in some specialists, reapers at harvest time, and they will be given the job of separating the wheat and the weeds. You don't need to worry about that. There's coming a time when I will bring in the specialists who will take care of this. They're specialists at dealing with this type of problem I will bring them in to deal with this problem. Now what is Jesus doing in this story? Jesus tells this story and he explains it. And what is he talking about, church? The kingdom of heaven. He's dealing with the kingdom of heaven as it's advancing on earth. And the final kingdom is it will come one day. Looking down to verses 36 and 39. That kind of sets us up. That gives us a story. And in verses 36 through 39, Jesus says the kingdom he's establishing is like this. He sows good seed, which he calls, in verse 38, what? Sons of the kingdom. In other words, many respond to the message of the kingdom, and they trust Jesus. They, the, the wheat, if you will, grows up, or the sons of the kingdom grow up trusting in Jesus. Sons of the kingdom, I've sown good seed. And by the way, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, in case you're wondering how many there will be, Jesus says many will come. I don't know about you, but the word many, I have it underlined, highlighted, circled. As I told someone this morning, if I could put me a little flashing red light, I would put it on that word. Many will come. Who said many is going to come? Jesus did. Many are going to come. But at the same time, in the latter part of verse 38, the first part of verse 39, the enemy, the evil one, the devil, is working against this kingdom. The devil sows weeds so that the sons of light, the sons of darkness, they coexist while they're in this kingdom on earth. Remember, the disciples ask, should we root out the weeds? Should we root out these sons of darkness? Should we get rid of them? 
What was Jesus' response again, church? Verses 39 through 42? No. I have specialists for that. I'll send my angels to make the final division at the end of time at the judgment. Jesus is talking about future judgment here. The time when the weeds will be separated from the wheat. They're going to be separated, but not right now. There's coming a time when that will take place, right? They're going to be separated. Now here's the question we should be asking ourselves. Are you ready? Who are the weeds? Is that on some of your minds right now? Who are the weeds? Because they're going to be what? Separated. So who are the weeds? As a whole, the weeds represent unbelievers. That's who they represent. But I believe that can be broken down and fleshed out in two different ways. It's unbelievers as a whole, but I think we can look at it in two different ways. One, the weeds are those who outwardly identify with Christ or the church, but who haven't genuinely been converted. They're intertwined in the church with those true believers. That's one aspect of the unbelievers. Does that make sense? There are believers in the church, but there are unbelievers in the kingdom on earth that are intertwined. They are weeds. For hundreds of years, there have been people who have made professions of faith in Jesus who do not, in fact, believe in Him according to the way the gospel calls them to. Even among Jesus' twelve disciples, there was a weed in there, right? And what was His name? Judas. Jesus had weeds. He knew there would be weeds among the wheat. Jesus is telling us that there will always be weeds that get into the church. That will be the case until what? Jesus comes. And then there's this judgment. Secondly, the weeds are also those who live side by side with other believers in the world, but whose hearts are far from Jesus. Those you work with. Those you go to school with. Those who are in your very own family. They're weeds. They're far from Jesus. And one day, what's going to happen to the weeds? They're going to be separated. Verse 40 through 42, Jesus says in the most shocking terms that the weeds are going to be judged. That's what He says. Jesus says for those who have not trusted in Him... What does he say, church? Judgment is coming. For those who are in the church who made a false profession of faith, those who who care nothing about the gospel or nothing about Jesus, they're unbelievers, but Jesus says there's coming a day when a reckoning will have to be given. There's going to be an account that's going to have to come. The weeds are going to be separated. So who are the weeds, church? They're unbelievers. Are you getting the point the judgment is inescapable? It's going to happen. The weeds will be removed. But what does it say in verse 43 about the sons of the kingdom? Those who believe in Jesus. I love this. They will, what's the word there? Shine. They will radiate the glory of God from that point on forever and ever and ever. Now look at verses 47 through 50. That's that parable there. 47 through 50 is the parable of the net. And for sake of time, I won't read those. They were read earlier. The parable of the net, if you're paying close attention, repeats the same truth as the weeds. Did you notice that? You may ask, why deal with this parable? If you just told us the judgment's coming, why would you go to another parable and tell us the same thing? Here's what I would suggest to you. 
That'd be a good question to ask Jesus, wouldn't it? Jesus is driving home a point. Judgment is coming and you will not escape. On the day of God's judgment, His final judgment, all of mankind will be separated into two categories. That's what this parable is telling us. According to how we respond to Jesus. For those who do not accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, the coming wrath cannot be adequately described. Verse 40 tells us that God's angels will throw them into a furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you are a weed today, if you are an unbeliever, and Jesus comes, Jesus gives us a metaphor here to describe the place of hell, and that's where you will go if you don't know Jesus. And I think it's striking that Jesus would give us two stories within this close proximity. Do you think He's trying to get a point across of how important this is? Of how important it is for us to be proclaiming the gospel to people around us who don't know Jesus, to be giving our money, to be praying that the gospel advances in this world. Does it ever come to your reality that there are people who, unless they hear the gospel and turn and trust in Christ, they will spend an eternity in a place called hell forever separated from God? At the end of verse 43, Jesus asks a question. Notice what His question is. Do you have what church Ears. Now, all of us in here have got them. We have these little appendages on the sides of our head. If you're like me, some just don't look very good. They're just there. They're good for hearing. But Jesus is not talking about the physical things on the sides of your head. He's saying, you better pay attention. You better listen because judgment is coming. If you've got ears, and by the way, you all do... And you're going, well, isn't there some deaf people in the world? Deaf people can understand the gospel when it's presented to them the right way. See, it's not a matter of physical hearing. It's a matter of receiving the gospel and responding to it. Now, here's my question for us gathered here today. Are you wheat or are you a weed? Not are you a church member, but are you a person who has heard the gospel and responded to that gospel by repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Christ? That's that's the call to those of us sitting here today. But an even greater call is this. The kingdom of heaven involves coming judgment. And your application that I gave you is we respond by advancing the gospel so people around us and people around the world know the good news. Remember the statement I made earlier? The good news is only good news if it what? Gets there in time. Is that a reality for us that there is coming a day when God will judge unbelievers? It's going to happen. And here's the deal. We can't escape that. It's coming. You'll either burn or you'll either shine with the glory of God. Look at your handout, number two there. We'll look at these two parables, the mustard seed and the yeast. And I call this the advance of the kingdom. Notice first of all in your handout there's the outward growth of the kingdom, verses 31 and 32. The parable takes up the subject of a kingdom's outward growth because sometimes, sometimes growth for us seems what? We don't see it, right? We don't see a lot of it. It's kind of insignificant. We're thinking, I don't see a lot. 
Think of Jesus and His disciples as He's telling them this parable. You have to put yourself in their shoes. There are only a few of them, right? Twelve in an inner circle. And, and if you're reading your, your Bible, you know that there's 120 or so in a broader circle of faithful disciples who are following Him. And Jesus is being opposed by Pharisees and scribes. And even though large crowds follow His ministry, many in the crowds don't listen They don't accept His claims. They find Him interesting, but they don't embrace Him as the Messiah. Jesus is an interesting guy. He's a cool dude, but eh, I can take Him or leave Him. The parable of the mustard seed shows us that the the outwardly the kingdom grows from an insignificant beginning to a glorious end. The mustard seed. Now, I'm not going to tell you nothing that you haven't heard. All your life, right? The mustard seed is what? The smallest seed in the world, right? And when it's planted, it grows to be what? Big enough that it can have branches that the birds of the air can come rest in it. So this tiniest seed becomes one of the largest of plants, right? The story is made to point out that the kingdom's outward manifestation is like that of a mustard seed. The kingdom now advancing is like a mustard seed. It may appear to be insignificant, but guess what? It's growing. And it grows in amazing ways. Jesus is speaking to followers who are relatively weak and insignificant and small, are they not? In comparison to everything else. They were considered to be nobodies. Do you think the disciples longed for more people to come into the kingdom? Absolutely. They longed for more people to come in. Hundreds and thousands would come. Is that us today? Do we long for that? Do sometimes we get discouraged? Do we lose heart because we don't see a lot of people coming into the kingdom? I think it's okay for us to say yes. I don't see it. Jesus' message to them and to us today is this, church. Be patient. Keep on believing. Keep on praying. Keep on working. Keep on knowing people that you may share the gospel with them. There is not a call, there's not an excuse to back off because you and I don't see these great results. And here's what I want to encourage you with. God's kingdom will grow. God is faithful, right church? God does not lie because God cannot lie. God has promised that through Jesus, He will redeem people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. It's going to happen. Nothing can stop it. Remember, we we studied Psalm 117 a couple weeks ago. The nations will praise Him. The peoples will extol Him. Jesus says, many are going to come. He says, pray to me, the Lord of the harvest, that I might raise up what? Laborers. What kind of harvest did He say it was? Plentiful. Do you trust God's promises that He will do what He says He's going to do? This kingdom will come. You and I look and we don't see a lot of results on the surface sometimes, but God is faithful. It's going to happen. And so what are we, our responsibility? We keep praying. We keep giving. We keep going to work every day. We keep building relationships. We keep talking to our neighbors and building relationships that we can tell them the good news of the gospel. There's another side to this gospel advance in verse 33. As quickly as I can. You have the parable here of the leaven or the yeast. What does yeast do? 
Transforms bread, right? Kind of works from what? The inside out? Just a small amount of yeast can spread into every part of the dough, right? What is the yeast a picture of? The kingdom of heaven. On a personal level, the kingdom starts in your very own personal heart as a seed, right? And it slowly works its way into what? Your thoughts, your beliefs, your motives, your affections, and then your actions. It doesn't make you a Christian and leave you unchanged is the point I'm making. Something happens when that comes into your heart. It does something to you. It changes your life, your motives, your actions, your affections. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 excuse me, says, If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Listen carefully. It doesn't stop there. It then moves through you into the lives of others and then steal from them into the lives of others. The point Jesus is making is that the kingdom of heaven slowly advances through the making of disciples. Not just making converts. The Great Commission does not say go make converts. It says go make disciples. Converting them is part of it, but it's not the end. It's making disciples, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. Teaching them to follow me. Don't teach them just to get a get out of hell free card if they can pull out their pocket every now and then and then put it back in. That's not what we teach people. We are teaching people to be followers of Christ. We teach them the gospel, they turn to Christ, and then we teach them how to follow Him. The gospel advances in that way. You may give money to Lottie Moon, and praise God for that. But what about giving time to making disciples? That's how the kingdom grows. Does it make sense? It's a multiplication process. You make a disciple, he makes a disciple. He makes a disciple. That's the way God has intended this thing to work. Parents, you're going, oh no. Here we go again. Especially you daddies this morning. Do you see the need to make disciples out of your children? Do you see that need? What are you doing to lead your children to Jesus and then lead them to be a follower of Jesus who then in turn makes more disciples? What are you doing to... Perpetuate the gospel. Jesus says that's how it works. I save you, you follow me, you teach others to follow me. They teach others to follow me. It's a cycle of making disciples. What is your goal today for your family? Is it to lead them to love the world or to lead them to love Jesus? What is your goal in life, parents? What is your goal, church member? Is it just to stroll through life and then go to heaven? Or is it to go to heaven and work on the way to lead others to Jesus? I think the correct answer is the latter. Teaching people how to follow Jesus who will make more followers of Jesus. And Jesus gives that call to every one of us who profess the name of Christ. No one gets to the pass on being a disciple maker. This leads perfectly into verses 44 through 46. 
Why do I make disciples? Why should I do that? Well, one reason, you're commanded to do it. And on your handout, here's the, to me, Jesus gives us the most glaring of reasons. The kingdom of heaven is a treasure of great value. You have the hidden treasure and the pearl. Jesus moves from talking about the virtual worldwide impact of the kingdom to talking about treasure and pearls. Does that not strike you as kind of odd? Here's the idea that we're to get from these parables. The gospel of Jesus, listen, is worth losing everything for. That's what Jesus says. What you're doing as a servant of Jesus, as you are going, Matthew 28, and making disciples, it's worth the risk of everything to do that. I didn't say that, but who said that? Jesus did. Notice in verses 44 through 46, the gospel is a treasure of immeasurable worth. Notice the hidden treasure. Let's just briefly walk through this. Notice the man's walking through a field and he finds what, church? All right, everybody's awake. Let's wake up. He finds what? Hidden treasure. What kind of treasure? Hidden. Now that may sound strange to you. Don't go home today and begin tracing through the fields thinking you're going to find a treasure. In this day and time, they didn't have safety deposit box and banks. Some of you can remember back to Grandma and Grandpa. They hid their money and their treasures, maybe in the mattress or where. These people did what? They went out to a remote place in a field and they dug a hole and they put it in the ground. That's what this man has run across. They buried their treasure. And it's interesting that it looks like the owner of the treasure has died, he's no longer around, and even the owner of the field, he doesn't even know it's there, right? The person who had the treasure didn't bother to tell anybody because he didn't want nobody to know but him. Along comes this other man, he discovers the treasure. He can't take the treasure, why? Because the land doesn't belong to him, that would be what? Stealing. So what does he do? He sells everything he has... How much is everything, church? Everything. To do what? To buy this field. Which means what when he buys this field? The treasure now belongs to who? Him. The hidden treasure is like what, church? The kingdom of heaven. Everything he had that he could see... He gave to buy this treasure. Notice the pearl, verses 45 through 46, quickly. There's a difference in this parable. This man's actually doing what? Looking for treasure. The other guy wasn't. He's a merchant. He goes around the world searching for pearls. Not just any kind of pearl. What kind of pearls is he looking for at church? Fine pearls. Beautiful pearls. He buys and he trades in pearls. He probably already has a lot of pearls. And then at this big yard sale, he finds the pearl. I ran across this in studying. There have been two pearls that are the largest in the history of the world. There's been two in the history of the world that have been the largest. Anybody want to guess who owned those pearls? 
Cleopatra. Queen of Egypt. One, one of those pearls that she had was valued at 25 million denarii. Denarii is New Testament for one day's wage. Somebody worked today, they got paid this wage. That one pearl was worth 25 million days of work. 25 million divided by 365 is 68,493. That's a valuable pearl, is it not? This man finds a pearl just like that. The pearl is what, church? The kingdom of heaven. He's been searching for fine pearls, and what happens? He finds it. And what is his thoughts? I've got to have this pearl. I can't let it get away. He sells all that he has, and he buys the pearl. He buys what, church? The kingdom of heaven. He doesn't work and spend money to get saved. He does it because it's valuable. What is the treasure? What is the fine pearl? It's the gospel. It's Jesus. One man is not looking for the treasure, but he finds it. That's some of you. You're you're living your life not looking for anything remotely related to God. You're going along, doing your own thing, and one day, out of the blue, boom, there's a treasure. There's Jesus. There's the gospel. Some of you are like the merchant. You're searching for fine pearls, and you have a lot of worldly fine pearls But you hear the gospel, the pearl of the gospel, and that pearl exceeds every pearl that you have. Again, I want to say this. Don't misunderstand. It's not the treasure or the pearl that's the focus. The treasure and the pearl are the gospel. It's Jesus. The kingdom of heaven, church, is like what? A fine pearl. The gospel, Jesus, is like a fine pearl. Both of those searching and those who are surprised is what you need to know. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus, the gospel, is something worth losing everything for. Jesus, the gospel, is greater than anything else this world has to offer. Paul said in Philippians 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Jesus and the kingdom He calls us to, listen, they're better, it's better than money, it's better than health, popularity, success, and even our families. The point of these parables is that these men found something of immeasurable worth and value. To those who are in Christ, there should be something more, there should not be anything more precious to you than Jesus. Nothing in this life compares to Christ in the gospel. Think about it, believer. There was a time when you were dead. And because of Jesus, you went from being dead to being what? Alive. Would you trade anything in the world for that? No. If you're smart, well, you can't. But if you could, if you're smart, you wouldn't. You wouldn't do that because you know that the gospel is of infinite value and worth. Notice again, quickly here, that the parable of the hidden treasure. If you miss this, this is good. 
Notice in this parable of the hidden treasure. Notice what it says. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. What motivates this man to give all that he has for the gospel, for Jesus? It's the only thing that can fill your life with never-ending joy. You notice what he says then? In his joy... There was joy over this treasure, over this gospel. And so he goes and sells everything he has because of it. This doesn't mean, now listen, you don't go home, and I don't think you will, and give everything away. That's not what it's saying. But it does mean that all you have is at the disposal and the use of the gospel. You find never-ending joy when all of life is about Jesus and the gospel. You want joy in your life that will never end and be the fullness of It's all in Jesus. Now you may be saying, Pastor, you have absolutely lost your mind. Let me remind you again. I'm not saying this, but who's saying it? Jesus is. When Jesus calls you to follow Him, He's not calling you to a life of misery. He's calling you to a life of endless, never-ending joy. Now, circumstances don't dictate our joy, right? This is yes. Some of you got some circumstances going on. There's not a whole lot of joy in that. But the fact that you know Jesus and nothing can separate you from Him brings you joy, right? If you're a believer, a disciple of Jesus, your life has purpose. Your life has meaning. And that is to glorify Jesus by making disciples. Why does He give you that purpose? It's because He knows that doing so will bring you the greatest joy that you can ever have in this life. Obeying and serving Jesus produces joy. That's what he's saying. Making disciples produces joy. In these parables, both men are giving everything for the gospel. They did so because the gospel is the source of never-ending joy. Let's make application, and then we'll finish here. Your application says here, because the gospel is a source of infinite worth and joy, it's worth losing everything for. And forgive me for ending a sentence with a preposition. It's worth you reorienting your life around so you might fulfill the purpose of glorifying Jesus. And here's what I want to say. Give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering so disciples can be made among the people groups of this world. Pray for the advance of the gospel, but pray and ask God to help you be a disciple maker. One who has joy, who wants that joy to come into the lives of others. Some of you need to pray this morning and ask God to help you to reorient your life around Jesus and the gospel. Some of you need to ask Him to make whatever changes are necessary. Standing here as your pastor, guess what I had to do this week? I had to do some reorienting, some changing in my life because I realized there were some things going on there that weren't surrounded the gospel. Because I learned in studying this, the gospel in Jesus is where the joy is found. One other application, those of you who are here lost today, you are the merchant that's looking for this fine pearl. You're searching for fine pearls. The problem is that all you're finding are imitation pearls. You ladies know about those, right? There's the real deal and then there's 
what some of us may have at home in our jewelry boxes, right? If you've got real ones, praise God. If you've got imitations, wear them like they're real. <laughs> Jesus is the pearl of great value, lost person. He will give you infinite joy. He will give you all you're looking for. Not materially, but He'll bless your soul with infinite joy. Repent of your sin and trust in Christ today because there's nothing in this world, no pearl that you can go after that ever compares to Him in the Gospel. Let's pray.